How many of you like like the new style Christmas songs? You like the new stuff or you like old school? Does anybody like old school Christmas songs? I kind of like old school Christmas songs and I don't know why. I think it just takes me back to my childhood. But anyway, as I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about in the month of December, I, I was kind of at a bit of a loss because you know what's funny as a pastor is, is that sometimes you repeat certain themes and so there's certain things that need to be talked about. Well, how many know Christmas comes around every year. And as a pastor, you begin to feel the pressure to like have to come up with something like new and fresh about Christmas every year. And after pastoring for, you know, I'm sure 20 and 30 years, these guys really get burned out. But, you know, me as a younger pastor, still finding, you know, all kinds of new ways and new avenues to talk about it. And I was thinking about it. The Lord kind of put on my heart the idea of Christmas songs because I like Christmas songs. Now, here's the deal. I only like them at Christmas time. So for all you people that play Christmas music year-round, that's not what I'm talking about. But during the Christmas season, and I'm a, I mean, you know, it's got to be post-Thanksgiving. You can't steal thunder from Thanksgiving and jump the gun. You can't have holiday creep. And so anyway, um, you, you got you to space them out. You got to enjoy the turkey. But then, so this is what we did on Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, we have a cool family tradition where we go out into the hills to these places where you can cut down your own tree. And we traipse through the, the forest and I cut down my own tree. It makes me feel, it's like one of the few manly experiences of my year, you know, where you really feel like, because I can't fix a car or much of anything but I can saw down a tree. And so anyway, you just get one of those little hand saws, you just go to town. And I, I, so, so anyway, Christmas is here. We play, and we play Christmas music we, on, on the drive out. And we cut down the tree and we, we come home. And we throw on the Christmas music and we start decorating. Actually, my wife decorates. I just move boxes. How many guys are like that? You know, like they're in charge of decorating, but you, you are the heavy lifter. And, I, and like, no lie, I think we have like 15 boxes of Christmas uh, decorations in our garage. That's too much. So anyway... So anyway, but Christmas songs are playing now. And so when you throw on the radio now, you've got these Christmas songs. And as I looked at them, especially the more traditional ones, especially the little bit more old school ones, there's incredible meaning and depth behind these songs. And they're rooted in the scriptures. And today we will look at a song called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Let's read the scripture in, in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse number 23. The, this is where it comes from. The Bible says, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so here we start with this big idea that Emmanuel, that, that we sing about the idea, we celebrate the idea that this is the holiday in which God somehow stepped out of his invisible realm. Stepped out of heaven, stepped out of maybe what we couldn't see and couldn't fully experience. You read the Old Testament and you see that God spoke to people and there were visitations from angels and there was all these different encounters. But never quite like this had God literally wrapped himself in flesh and blood to come to earth for one primary reason. So that he could be with us as close to us as he could possibly get. He is Emmanuel. Let's pray as we begin today. Father, we pray, Lord God, that this morning that you would speak to us through the scriptures, through the song, Lord God. Above all, let us walk out of this place different. Let life change happen today. God, let our minds be just wide open today to what you're trying to say to us, God. Let our hearts be open to receive and our ears be open to hear, God. This is our prayer today in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. amen. Now, this morning, I'm going to do something I have never, ever done on a Sunday morning. No, I, I sing a good bit. You don't like me to, but I do. And um, no, I'm going to use a whiteboard this morning. 
I never use a whiteboard. Now, this is a, this, I'm going to share with you a thought and an idea that originated for me uh, probably almost a couple of years ago. And I shared it with our men and I think our young adult, but I've never shared it here on a Sunday morning. And what I want to do is, is I thought there's no real way for me to share this without maybe drawing some artwork. Now, here's what I need you to do. Be merciful. Okay, I am not an artist. So you're going to see some real stick figure formation. So if you could put the white screen up on the board for me, I'm going to share with you where we somehow miss out on the reality that God really wants us to experience with him. Does that make sense? Because you and I, we all need to be in touch with Emmanuel, but many of us are in touch with a different thought, a different avenue, or can I just say it like this? We have a different paradigm of the way that we see God. Everybody say paradigm. It's the pattern and the way in which we see God. It's the way that we approach God. And today I'm going to share with you four big things that we all tend to do when we look at God and how they're all somewhat correct, but they're all completely flawed at the same time. I know that sounded really confusing, didn't it? Here's, here's where I'm going to begin. What I want to share with you this morning is this, is that every major religion from ancient all the way to present all starts with the same basic notion. If we were here doing a history class, I could show you whether it was Islam or Hinduism or any type of New Age or any type, I could show you that in essence, we are all the same at our starting point. There's that big fallacy that, that people make that they say that all religions are, are kind of on the surface different, but at their core, they're all the same. You ever hear people make that type of a comment? That they, that in essence, that we all start far apart, but we're all climbing a mountain to reach the same point. We're all trying to get to God. Can I tell you that's actually the opposite of truth? In reality, on the surface, all religions are the same, and fundamentally at their core, they are radically different. That not are we all starting from different places trying to get to one true God. Actually, you and I are all starting, every human being starts from the same place. And then we branch out and go into wildly different directions. Here's what I mean. Do you know that every religion starts with the idea that, oh no, life is difficult. The world is dangerous. So as a matter of fact, if we were going to do it, this would be the cycle that we kind of start on. The first cycle is this. is that we all recognize that we live in a dangerous world. Can I get an amen? Like, and we're less dangerous as a world now than we have ever been in human history. Do you know that? And that's still pretty scary because we have the ability to annihilate millions and millions of people in one push of a button. And yet, at the same time, we're somewhat safer now. We, we, we're more sophisticated now. We've developed more ways of staying alive longer and being healthier and being more advanced. And so, But the reality is, is that we all live in a dangerous world, don't we? We all recognize that, that, that life can leave us at any moment, that bad things can happen. And so again, in an ancient world, think about it like how scared you might be. If you didn't have enough rain, then you wouldn't have crops. And if you didn't have crops, you wouldn't have any what? Food. And then you would die. And so what did you do? You just recognized, wow, we live in a dangerous, dangerous world. And that produces what in all of us? We're all afraid, aren't we? We're like, we're either going to die or our children are going to die or we're going to starve to death or we're going to, some people group are going to overtake us. Something bad's going to happen. We all live in a fearful state. So you know what? When we're afraid, what do we do? We all do what? Seek control. Because isn't that the answer? Like if you live in a world of chaos and you live out of control, what do you need to get into? You need to get into control. And so here's what we do. We go to a God 
that we perceive to be there and we say, God, I need you to order the world. I need this thing to happen. I need you to put everything back into control because if I'm control, I'm in control, then I'm what? I'm safe and I'm not afraid anymore. And then maybe the world's not dangerous. So think about every religion that ever started. Started with a people group who were afraid, who recognized they live in a dangerous world. But if they could somehow get to God, then maybe God could save them. Maybe God could rescue them. So when you think about in the ancient terms, they, they, they knew they needed rain, so what did they do? They prayed to a rain god. And they knew they needed a sun, so they prayed to a, a sun god. And they, they, they knew they needed to have children, so they prayed to, prayed to a, a fertility god. And they all were seeking something to try to get control. What's funny is this, is that actually people groups trying to get more control actually makes the world more dangerous. You know why? It's because for me to get safe and for me to have enough, it probably means that you won't have enough. So me getting safety and control actually makes your world less safe and less under control. Because if I've got enough for me and I've got enough for my family and I've got enough for my people group, what do you not have? You don't have enough. So your world becomes out of control and then this crazy world continues to be dangerous and chaotic and we all start with this premise and so you know what we do is we come to God and we say God we need you to intervene we need you to step in and we need you to do something so then we begin to approach God now here like I told you there's there's four different ways in which we mainly approach God this idea was 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 originated by a guy named Sky Jathani who's a uh, an Indian pastor and, and he's got a book called I'll tell you the, the name of the book later But he goes on to tell you, and I'm going to share with you this morning, is that we all approach God from four different vantage points. And he, he, here's what it would look like. The first one would be this. Let's say God is a triangle, which that's weird to think about. But God's not a triangle, but for sake of my silly artwork, God is a triangle. The first one would be this. You are a person, and you are living what? You're under God. You love this artwork, don't you? This is award-winning stuff here everybody say under god you felt like that before at some point didn't you your world was out of control you needed something and if you perceived as god being big and you being little then you felt under god and so what we did was is in all kinds of different religious ways we decided if we're under god and god is big and god can do things and god can can control things and we're under god we have to figure out how to appease god We've got to figure out what he likes and what he doesn't like, and we need to start doing the things that he likes so God will do things for us, right? So this is why, listen, this is why people would throw the virgin into the volcano, right? Why? Because we need, we need a good harvest next year, so we're going to throw the virgin into the volcano. We're going to give our children to the god Moloch. We're going to throw our babies in the Nile River. We're going, to do, we're going to do all these things because we need to appease God because we are underneath God. And if we can get God just to do for us what we need him to do, then life can be what? A little less dangerous, we'll be a little more, less fearful, and life will be in control. Because why? Because we appease God. And we do this as Christians as well. As Christians, we do this. Sometimes we have a paradigm to where we are underneath God, and we believe that if we will pray the right prayers pray the right number of times, if we'll fast enough, if we'll give enough, if we'll be obedient enough, if we'll, because isn't that what religion basically teaches? If you're really, really good, then God will like you. If you're really, really good, then God will bless you. Isn't that what basic religion teaches you? I'm messing with y'all today, aren't I? You're almost confused. You're like, I don't know if I should answer that or not. What if I'm wrong? He's tricking me. I know. 
But we do. We believe if we pray enough ways, fast enough ways, do enough things that we can somehow get God under control. And here's the problem with that. Some of you, because I have people that do this to me, they'll come to me with incredible disappointment. They'll say stuff like, why did grandma die? She was always at church. She always prayed. She always gave. She always did all these things. She was a great person. And why did she die? Because what they believed was is that they were under God. Grandma was under God. And she did all the right things, and yet God still didn't come through for her. And so he ends up, or she ends up, incredibly disappointed. Why? Because you couldn't get God to do what you wanted him to do for you. But is that the goal of who God is and what he wants to do in your life? Here's the other way that this happens. This is where so many of you are that, that, that don't feel like you measure up. You know that this is how the system works, but you know you can never be obedient enough. How many of you ever feel like that? Like God just hates me because I'm not good enough. God can't bless me because I always screw up and I always make mistakes. So either way, you end up disappointed. You're just not as disappointed in God as much as you're disappointed with who? Yourself. Either way, you're disappointed in life because you live a life underneath God. Now, let me ask you a question. Should we pray? Seek God. Live obediently. Yeah. But is this the way that we really should approach God? And the answer would be no. Here, here's the second way that we approach God. Not only do we have life under God, that's a better triangle. Now we have life. He looks hurt up, doesn't he? I wish I could draw. I'm going to take an art class. Um, now we have life what? We're not over God anymore. We're what? <laughs> Don't you love that? Everybody say over. Maybe I should have rethought this whiteboard thing, huh? I think I need to practice my whiteboard skills before I test them out on you. I'm going to work on this next time. Everybody say Over. This is how you approach God. So, so some of you don't feel like you're under God. Some of you feel like you're over God. Those of you who are leaders, who are doers, proactive, self-motivated, you think like this definitely because you think, oh, no, 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 no. I know how to get things done in the world. I know God is there, but God's empowered me with truth, with wisdom, with principles, and I'm gonna take all those on and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of business because God has given me every tool I need to succeed in life. And you know what we end up doing? We don't end up depending on God. We end up depending on God's principles and God's truth. At, at the most secular level, this is what atheism is. We depend on logic and reason and science, and we are able to figure things out. And if we can enough, uh, uh, understand enough of how the world works and scientific laws, then we don't need God. We'll figure out how to master science and master medicine and keep everything under control because we live in a dangerous world, right? So from, from an atheistic, scientific, or secular standpoint, we can do that totally absent from God. But even inside of Christianity, we do it. Think about it. There's a book for everything about how to raise kids God's way. How to do finances God's way. How to, and they're all good books. They're all motivated from the right standpoint. But they all kind of come out of this paradigm of we'll just figure out all of God's laws. And then when we master them, then we'll have the world under our control. This is what, this is what Jesus said to some Pharisees who thought like this. In John chapter 5, he says these. He, he says these words. He says, you Pharisees, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. So do you see what he's saying here? He's saying you thought because you memorized all the scriptures and you got all the principles down and you got all the truths down that you could somehow figure out God, but you forgot I am God 
and you missed the boat somehow. You thought, see, you, let me help you out real quick here. You can actually have a relationship with the Bible and not have a relationship with God. You can actually study, study, study and miss Jesus completely. Because you thought that in studying the scriptures that you would somehow master something. These are people that somehow formulate God. You, you, you've seen this people with, with certain camps and groups. If I pray a certain amount of times, if I go to this person, if I give this offering, then I can work this formula because I can somehow master God with the formulas that he's given me. And so now I live a life over God. I really don't need God. I just need his principles. And if I operate by his principles, here, here, here's what happens. Some of us live by all the principles in the world. Because some of you do this. You'd be like, hey, I tried to raise my kid the right way. I took him to church. and I did devotion. I did all these things. And he still went crazy. And what are you? Disappointed. Because God would not comply with what you wanted him to do. God didn't do it exactly the way that you wanted him to do it. And so you're incredibly disappointed. Because here's a thought. A couple of weeks ago, a tsunami hits the Philippines. Let me ask you a question. Were there great people there? Moral people godly people, Jesus followers. Were they praying, fasting some of them? Were they doing all these things? Hey, were they living by all the principles and all the truths? And so if your paradigm is simply that I'm over God or I'm under God or I've got some way that I've mastered control and when life falls out of control, you know what you end up? You end up with faith wreckage. You are lost in your faith because you think this didn't work. I trusted God and it didn't work. No, you trusted the principles. You trusted your rituals and your routines. There's a difference between that and actually trusting God. Let's keep going. So there's life under God. There's life over God. Here, here's a thought. This is the number one thing I think we deal with in America today. Let's go back here. We deal with life from God. Let's do a better stick person now that he's upright. Before he was laying underneath a mountain and the other one, he was climbing a mountain. Now he's semi-normal because he's just next to the mountain. So this is, the, this is the word we're looking for. Now we've got life, what? From God. Everybody say from. This is what you and I believe. Most of us in America, we believe that God is here to meet our needs and our desires. That God is here to get us more stuff. Now, we would probably never say that, but we actually think that way and live that way. We've got a whole culture in America where we think that God is here to make sure that we have a better marriage. And God's here to make sure we're blessed in our finances. And God is, in essence, God is here to give us good stuff. God is here to provide for us and give us everything that we ever needed and everything that we ever wanted and our desires and our hopes. And God's here to give us stuff. Everybody say, woohoo! Yeah, God's here to give us stuff. This is what we call Christian consumerism. We go to God because we need something fixed. We need a new product. We need something. He is the divine vending machine. He's the cosmic butler. He is here to do awesome stuff for us. This is the American dream with a Jesus spin on it, where we're to be blessed and to be successful. And who's going to help us achieve it? God is. Now, let me ask you a question Does God want to be your provider? So at what point do we cross the line? Because, let me ask you a question, does God want you to live morally? Yeah, of course. You know, here's the question, does God want you to pray and give? Yeah. Does God want to be your provider? Yeah, that's, but if that's all that we ever have, we end up with a wrecked life. The paradigm has gone too far. As a matter of fact, you know who represents this in Scripture? Jesus tells a parable about what's called the prodigal son. 
Do you remember the prodigal son story? It's about a young man who basically wants to go live high and mighty and have all kinds of stuff, but he doesn't want any to have anything to do with his dad. So he goes to his dad and says, hey, dad, I, I kind of don't even care if you're alive or not is in essence what he says to him, but I really want your stuff. I want you to give me my share of the inheritance now so I can go do what I want and have all the stuff. And you know what the dad says? Dad says, okay. <laughs> Which is so shocking to the listeners that the son would actually get what he asked for. And so the son goes off and lives lavishly and wants to live this crazy lifestyle. Now let me ask you this. Did you really want a relationship with the father or did you just want the father's stuff? And many of us, that's how we are. We, we, we see God as a means to an end. And the end is we want a blessed life and we want a better marriage and we want good kids and we want a great career and we want a house and we want a car and we want all these things. We want the American dream with a Jesus spin on it. And guess who's gonna help us get it there? God is, because God is the means to that special end that we really want. It's quiet up in this Methodist church. Many of us are like that. Many of us want God's stuff. We don't necessarily want God. And when God doesn't give us the stuff, we end up disappointed and we end up with faith wreckage once again. There's, there's a kickback to this though. See, in America, if you, if you study and follow churches a little bit like I do, then you know that there's a revolt. How many know that sometimes the pendulum swings out hard one way and then it swings back the other way? So when this pendulum swung out and said, we want life from God, this was kind of that um, name it and claim it movement, that prosperity gospel where we just, God's gonna bless us and give us all kinds of stuff and that's what, and then all of a sudden in Christianity a few years ago, the pendulum began to swing back and we began to change our minds. Some churches began to revolt against this and kick back against this and say, no, 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 no. We don't want life from God. You know what the best way to do it? It's this. It's life for God. That's what life is all about. It's life for God. See, God's not here to serve you. You are here to serve God. And the way that you find fulfillment, the way that you find meaning in life is by serving God. So you know what you need to be on? You need to be on an incredible mission in life. You need to, what are you doing for God? How are you serving God? How are you helping God? How are you advancing the kingdom? What, what have you done? Have you, have you built any orphanages or built wells or built things or done things or gone places? What have you done? And you need to live a life for God. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm gonna bust your bubble. You jumped out too quick. I wasn't done messing with you. Let me ask you a question. Should we live for God? Now you're nervous. Yes. But even this paradigm is flawed. Even this has something missing in it. Because what if you do all those things and life still doesn't work out the way that you want it to? Because isn't, isn't it funny? Because if you go to churches, what you'll find is this, is usually there's a church that likes one paradigm and they kind of rail against all the other ones. Have you ever noticed that? Like whatever church you go to, you find a church that makes every other paradigm the wrong one and we're the right one. Does that make sense? Like the people that are like, you know, you, you need to get yours and God wants to bless you and they're all about that. But then you got this swing back moment that says, no, 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 don't be like them. It's, it's what you need to do for God. As a matter of fact, you remember the, the, the parable of the prodigal son? It's a terrible name. It's probably a header in your Bible, but nobody put that in there other than Nelson editors or Zondervan editors. It's not a parable of a lost son. It's a parable of two lost sons. If you go read the whole story of the prodigal son, it's about one son who wants to live from God, and then the other son, he lives for God. Do you notice the end of the story? When the older son comes home, he finds that the dad has thrown a lavish party for his younger brother. 
To which it makes him resentful and angry. So angry that he dishonors his father and refuses to go in even to speak to him. And, and so the, the, the father comes out to plead with the son. And you know what the son, the older son starts doing is? Is look at all those years I served you. Because I served you, you somehow owed me something. And the, father, the older son fell into the trap of saying, look, I've, I've lived a life for you. Lo, all these years I've served you, and I've never once had a fatted calf. Sometimes this position creates arrogant, self-righteous people because they're better than everybody else. They didn't live from God or under God. They were living for God. But it somehow put them at odds with the world, and it put them eventually at odds with God because they still felt like God owed them something. So when you find the son getting mad at the father, the father says something so incredible. And the father says this, this is what changes everything for us. Listen to these words. So in Luke chapter 15, verse number 31, the end of the story, the Bible says that the father responds to the older son this way. He said, my son, you are always, everybody say with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. What was the father celebrating about the son? What did he celebrate his sin and craziness? No, of course not. What did he celebrate? That he was with him again. That he was lost but now he was found. He was away but now he's home again. He was celebrating the fact that he now had a relationship with his son again. It doesn't dismiss all of his sin, but was the sin the primary issue? Did God make sin the primary issue? No. As a matter of fact, when he comes home, the son had worked up a speech of repentance. The father didn't even let him get through with the speech before he begins to throw his arms around him and to love him because he was now with him. Look at the words that the father says to the older son. Let's, let's look at it real quick. Again, you can just listen to me. The Bible says this. It says that, my son, the father said, you are always, everybody say, with me. So what did the older brother have but he didn't know that he had? He had everything already. Because he was with God. I'm going to show you the true paradigm here. That's my best one yet, wasn't it? No, I'll probably mess it up. With God. This is what we want. You ever think about how you look at God? And typically you look at God as what? When we fall into those traps, we look at God as a means to an end. I'm gonna help you real quick here. God is the end. He is the beginning and the end. That God is not a means for us to attain some type of treasure. God is the treasure. And that what God wants, now let me ask you a question. Again, does God want you to live morally? Yeah, because that'll bless your life. Does, does God want you to, to, to live doing things for him and building the kingdom? Yeah, because it'll bless the world around. So God is for all these things. But if this is the way in which you approach God, you are still somehow using God as a means to an end. I'm here to tell you that God is the end, that God is the treasure, that God is everything that you've ever been looking for, that in him you find everything. Not through what he's going to give you, not through all the stuff, but in him, in God. Listen, listen to these words here. Hebrews chapter one, verse three says this. 
It says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Listen to those first words again, that the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. What he was saying was this, is everything that is God was wrapped up into Jesus. And when we look into Jesus, we get an amazing picture of who God is, and we discover that God himself is the treasure. That God himself is the end that we have all been longing for. That this is what life is really, really all about. Listen to this, John 17 verse 3 says this. It says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He goes, this is what life is. Life is about a relationship. Again, when, when the Bible says to know God, it's not talking about facts, ideas, and information. It's talking about relational knowledge. Does that make sense? This is why in the Old Testament, they would use weird terminology. And Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived a son. And you're like, so he thought about her hard, and she got pregnant. No, they knew each other relationally. So when the Bible says that he wants you to know God, he's not saying it in a weird way, but he's saying, I want you to know him relationally and experientially. I want you to know God because that's where life flows from. Think about it this, and I'll close in this. Listen, in the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that God walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. So in the very beginning of all creation, before sin ever hit the planet, what was God doing in terms of his relationship with humanity? He was with them. Okay, think about the book of Revelation. I'm gonna read it for you. Revelation chapter 21, verse number three. The Bible says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now what? Among the people and he will dwell where? With them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older things has passed away. Many of us, what we fall in the trap of is we want to get to this place. We want to get to a place where it's safe and there's no more danger and there's no more fear. Why? Because there's no crying, there's no pain, there's no tears. How does that happen? It is only happening because you are with him. Many of us, we would love to go to heaven and have all of our heart's desires and have all of our pleasures, and yet we would never even think about who God is. Many of us, that's how we came to Christ. Somebody, somebody gave you an awful, awful picture of a place called hell and said, do you want to go there? And you said, no. Because nobody wants to go there. Especially the way the mean guy described. Nobody wants to go there. And then what they did is they began to paint a picture of heaven and how beautiful and wonderful and awe and how amazing it was. They didn't talk about God, just how amazing heaven was. And they said, who wants to go there? And we were all like, we do. Get the bus started, let's go. I don't want to go to hell. Heaven sounds great. And because we've preached this type of a gospel for the last 10 and 20 and 30 years, we've missed the whole boat. That life is not about avoiding hell or about getting into heaven. Life is about being with God. And some of you, you're so disappointed and you think Christianity was broken and my faith didn't work and the preacher had it all wrong. Can I tell you? You're right. We had it all wrong. Whenever we live a life trying to get more stuff from God or just purely do stuff for God, we'll end up disappointed. As long as we think we can get God under control by enough prayers and rituals or by living by enough principles. And well, I use my faith. And some of us, we put so much faith in our faith, we forgot that we actually should have faith in Jesus. God wants to become Emmanuel. The whole purpose of the entire redemptive story 
In the beginning, he is with them. At the end, he is with them. And in the middle, Jesus is coming to be with them. So what's the whole point of this thing? Is that I want your relationship with God to move in a completely different direction. Because hopefully by doing so, you will eventually avoid some type of faith wreckage where you think Jesus didn't work, God's not around, my faith is broken, Christianity is a, is a sham. Listen to me. As long as we put our hope in all those other ideas, we will eventually all be disappointed. You know what we don't have when we have a relationship with God? We don't have disappointment. Last thing I'll share with you, this quote by John Piper. He says something very, very interesting and thought-provoking that I think we all need to, to wrestle with. It's not on the screen. You're gonna need to listen carefully. John Piper said this, and again, it's just a quote that you need to think about and wrestle with. He says, the gospel is not how people get to heaven, but it is how people get to God. If you would be happy in heaven, if Jesus were not there, then you may not be there. I wanna encourage you today that Jesus is that radiant, amazing image of who God is. And it is through a relationship with him and it is living life with him and journeying with him that all of life is found. Let's pray this morning. See, the reality is that we do live in a dangerous world. We all need God to intervene and to do some amazing things. And I'm telling you, he even wants to but maybe not in the way that you want him to, and maybe not in the timing that you want him to. But if you will live a life with him, even when tragedy hits and even when life spins out of control, you know what you'll have? You'll still have faith. You'll still have hope. You'll still have peace. Not because of every external thing being worked out and being perfect, but because God will be with you. And so this is the type of message, just so you know, that you wrestle with. Because even though you've heard it today and you say, wow, Todd, that's, that was amazing. I, you know what? That was me. This one was my paradigm. You really helped me course correct. Can I, can I help you real quick here? You're going to want to revisit this in six months, 12 months, two years from now. Because we have a tendency to begin to kind of just drift back or slide back into a certain paradigm, into a certain way of living. Because listen to me, a lot of these things, you'll hear me teach these things. Yes, I want you to live for God, on mission, on his purpose. Yes, I want you to live right and live more so that you can have the most blessed life possible. I want all those things for you, but I never want you to have those things apart from a relationship with God. And that's what I want you to begin to pursue. In your prayers, begin to question your prayers. And say, am I praying for stuff? Or am I praying so that I may know God? What's funny is if you go look at the Lord's Prayer, the whole first half of it is about you communing and connecting and worshiping and being with God. And the second half of it is about God blessing you and providing for you. So does God want to be your provider? Absolutely, yes. But in light of you being with him. Having a relationship with God is the one thing that will unbreak your faith. It will fix your faith wreckage. It will clean up the disappointment. It will heal the disappointment. So Father, we come to you today, God, to say we repent. It's so easy to walk down one of these lines and to get into one of these traps and to think this is the way it's supposed to be and then we just, we miss it. So God, we ask for your forgiveness and Lord God, we thank you that you are here with us today. 
God, to speak to us, to, 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 to be with us, God, to change us from the inside out, to help us to know you. So God, we pray that you would do that amazing thing where you bring life change, where you draw us closer to you, where we get a glimpse and a vision of how amazing and wonderful and good you are. God, we pray this morning that every person here, God, that we would live a life of trying to know you and to be with you. God, that is our prayer today. In Jesus' name. And we all said...